we began a series together, Steve did an incredible job last week kicking us off in a series about the life of David. Uh, it's an Old Testament story and David's life is lived and, and the stories of David are told in the Old Testament. And uh, if you're anything like me, sometimes we can forget that the stories in the Bible, particularly the ones in the Old Testament, uh, are history, that this is uh, recorded sacred history, that the stories of David, they didn't happen in a galaxy far, far away. The stories of David did not happen in Narnia. Uh, this, this happened on planet Earth, that you can go there. You can stand in the places where these stories take place. And we, we, for most of us, we know these stories of David. Uh, these, are, these are famous stories. A lot of the Old Testament stories, we sort of know they're sort of in our cultural conscience, whether it's the story of Samson, whether it's the story that we're gonna look at today, the story of David and Goliath. Uh, if you don't hang around church a whole lot or you're sort of new to Christianity or you don't read the Bible a whole lot, uh, you, these are perhaps stories that are kind of fuzzy. You know, you're not quite sure if it's a Disney story or if it's a Bible story. Uh, line sort of starts to get blurred. Uh, you've looked over and over for the story of the Little Mermaid in the scriptures and you can't seem to find it. Uh, it's right after the part about the fox and the hound. It's uh, in Proverbs. But you, <laughs> you've looked over and over. Uh, like, like these stories, they they're in our cultural conscience. We, we know these stories. They're, uh, they're stories that even if you're not a Christian, you've heard, you know, when I say Goliath, I mean, you know I'm talking about a giant. It's just, these are stories that we know, but they're, but they're not just sort of stories that people wrote down to inspire people, even though they do. Uh, they're stories that people wrote down because they watched it happen. Uh, 3,000 years ago, the story of David and Goliath, someone wrote it down because they watched this story take place. And if you grew up in church, it's a story that we get really familiar with. This is a story we, for a lot of us, you saw flannel graphs when you were you know, really little in Sunday school or vacation Bible school. Uh, we grow up telling this story to kids, which I'm not quite sure why we tell the story of David and Goliath to kids. It's sort of a grisly, gruesome story where David cuts off the head of Goliath. I mean, sort of this uh, brutal story. I remember in third grade uh, getting selected to play the part in vacation Bible school of David. And it was the greatest moment of my whole life up until this point. And the vacation Bible school teacher had brought in a, uh, an actual slingshot and had brought in an actual tunic. I'm not sure where he got the tunic from. But, but he had, the, and, and it was the greatest uh, like moment like to, to, to play the part of David. And uh, unfortunately at this age, girls tend to grow a little faster than boys. And our not so sensitive Sunday school teacher selected a girl to play the part of Goliath. <laughs> Let that sink in for a second. Uh, her name was Katie. She hit like a freakish growth spurt somewhere around second grade. I'm sure she's telling this story to a therapist today somewhere in North America. <laughs> Forget North America. She probably had to move clear out of the hemisphere to recover. Uh, Katie and I had been friends our whole life up until this point, but our friendship died on the battlefield that day. And so the, the story, the, the, the teacher read the story of David and Goliath, and as you read, you think, why do we tell the story to kids? I mean, David cuts off the head of Goliath. It's a grisly story, sort of a gruesome story. This is not a good model for conflict resolution. <laughs> At another level, the story is, is sort of confusing because you know, this week we're gonna read David and Goliath, next week come back, we're gonna read the Sermon on the Mount. You know, are we supposed to love our enemies or are we supposed to cut their heads off, you know, <laughs> which, of it, which one is it? And I talked to a lot of Christians, and maybe this is you, 
uh, that say, I don't even read the Old Testament. I just read the New Testament. I, I, you know, it gets confusing and, you know, God seems angry and they're at war. And I, you know, I just stick to the New Testament where it's about love. I meet a lot of Christians that don't even read the Old Testament at all. And why should we read the stories? Why should we go back and look at the life of David and Goliath? Why are these stories uh, important to us as disciples of Jesus? Why why are these stories of significance? Why why should we read these stories? And something happens when you begin to look at the story, in particular of David and Goliath, the story we're gonna look at today, uh, and you don't just read it sort of as a fable. And it's not just sort of this, you know, in a galaxy far, far away. It's not just sort of this, uh, you know, about a giant and sort of this, you know, DC comic character, you know, coming towards David. When you begin to read the story as sacred history, uh, all of a sudden the story isn't so much about uh, who David is fighting on the battlefield 3,000 years ago, but it becomes a story about what David is actually fighting for. And this is the way that Samuel, the writer of the story in 1 Samuel chapter 17 tells the story. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screens and uh, that's a good place to follow along too. But the story's told in 1 Samuel chapter 17, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, 1 Samuel, there you go, right there, 1 Samuel, right in the heart of the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 17. Now, just to set up the story a little bit, uh, the Philistines, Steve set up a lot of this last week, but the Philistines are the arch rival and they are the bitter sworn enemy of the people of God, the nation of Israel. And they have been at war, they just are sort of these warring tribes back and forth. And this battle that takes place on this particular day, on the, in the Valley of Allah, where, the, where this battle between David and Goliath takes place, uh, it wasn't even supposed to happen. They are there because King Saul, the leader of the nation of Israel at this point, uh, had made some really bad leadership decisions. He had issued an edict, and the story's told in 1 Samuel 13 and 1 Samuel 14. He had issued this edict that the soldiers of Israel uh, couldn't eat, and it was sort of a religious thing. And so they go into this battle that they were supposed to win against the Philistines, and they're hungry, and they're sluggish, and so they lose. And so that battle and that bad decision by Saul has led to this battle between David and Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And so this is sort of the the setup, and this is the story as Samuel records it 3,000 years ago in chapter 17. He says this in verse one. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Demim between Soko and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Allah, and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another, with the valley between them. And so Samuel records the story, and he sort of wants you to imagine what's happening here. You have the Israelites are on one hill, they're on one side of the battle, they're stationed on this side, and then you have this valley, a buffer zone that runs between them and the Philistines who are camped out on this side. They have taken these cities and they are stationed on this hill, and there's this valley that runs between them, and for 40 days, they are each camped out in this valley between them, and nobody knows how this battle's gonna end. What's gonna happen? What's sort of the, you know, how's this gonna come to a conclusion? Eventually somebody has to pull a trigger. Eventually someone has to encroach into uh, the other person's territory. 
And it says that Goliath, verse four of chapter 17, a champion named Goliath. And so uh, most of us are familiar, you've heard the name Goliath at some point, but Goliath is a champion. What that means is, uh, and this is very rare in the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, this is the only instance where a battle is fought like this. This is actually a very Greek idea and a very Greek way of doing battle. But essentially what would happen instead of two militaries squaring off and thousands of people dying in a battlefield, what they would do is that one side, in this case the Philistines, would send out their champion warrior to enter into what was called a contest of champions. And whoever won that contest of champions, that each side got to send somebody out, that uh, side won the war and it saved a lot of people's uh, lives in battle. And so this is, this is the champion for the side of the Philistines, the sworn enemy of Israel. They send out Goliath. And Samuel wants you to know where he's from. He wants you to know what he looks like. He records a lot of detail about who this Goliath uh, guy is. Who was from Gath? He came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. Uh, that would equal about nine feet tall and about three inches. This guy makes Dirk Nowinski look like a toddler. <laughs> this is a really big boy. Nine feet, three inches tall, this Goliath. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his leg, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went out ahead of him. And so Samuel wants you to know a great bit of detail about where Goliath's from, about what he looks like, how tall he is, what he's wearing. He's essentially wearing about 125 pounds of armor, uh, which seems sort of exhausting, but I guess if you're nine feet tall, it's, it's not a big deal. But he's, uh, this is what he's wearing. Now, this battle takes place in what is called the Valley of Allah. Uh, this is a picture of the Valley of Allah. You can go there to this very day. You can put your fingers in the stream that David uh, got the stones from, which he would go to kill Goliath with. Uh, you can stand on the hillside where the Philistines stood, and you can stand on the hillside where the Israelites stood on this particular day. Now, 12 miles directly to the west of the Valley of Allah is the Mediterranean Sea. And this is where the nation of Philistia, the people of Philistia, Goliath and, and the army of Philistia, the Philistine army, this is essentially where they would come from. Often we read the story, we think the Philistines came from you know, sort of a long distance, maybe they came thousands of miles to fight and defeat the, the Israelites, but they were from you know, 12, 20 miles away from where the Israelites would live. And they are encroaching into Israelite territory. They have left their hometown and their goal is to seize and to conquer the kingdom of Saul and the kingdom of Israel. And they have come from 12 miles to the west uh, where the Mediterranean Sea is to fight this battle. 12 miles directly to the east of this battle, uh, 12 miles to the east is a handful of cities, one of which is Bethlehem, uh, which is... Uh, obviously where Jesus was born, familiar with Bethlehem. But at this time, uh, Bethlehem is one of the main cities and at the very heart and at the core of the nation of Israel. Now, in our world, if you wanna get to Houston, Texas, there are a lot of different ways that you can go to get there. You can take main roads, you can take back roads. There's a lot of different avenues uh, that you can take. But in this world, if you wanna get to Bethlehem, there's only one pathway that you can take to get there. 
And the road that gets to Bethlehem, it goes straight through the valley of Allah. And so essentially, uh, what the Philistine army is doing is they are trying to enter in to, to take and seize this valley so that they can have easy entrance into the very heart and the very soul of what the kingdom of Israel will be. So they can kill and they can seize and they can conquer uh, Bethlehem and a handful of other cities at the core of the nation of Israel. Now, who else is from Bethlehem? David is from Bethlehem. This is his hometown. And so when David comes to fight this battle in the Valley of Allah, when David shows up, he is very aware of what happens if the Philistines win. He knows that to lose this battle to Goliath on this particular day could mean his own house would burn down. David is very aware of what hangs in the balance on this particular day, on this particular battlefield. David knows that there is a lot at stake in this particular moment. Now, this Valley of Allah, it would be called, a, it's called a shephelah. That's, uh, and essentially that word means uh, lowland. It's sort of the word for valley, uh, the word shephelah. In fact, let's just try saying that word together, shephelah. Uh, it's sort of a funny word, but let's try it. Let me count, okay? I'm going to count, and then you, you go, okay? You guys are antsy. Okay, um, one, two, three. That was good. Let's try it one more time, just a little tighter. One, two, three. There you go, Shephala. Uh, and, and this is an area, there are four of these in the nation of Israel, and the Shephala is critical to the Israelites' way of life. It's where the trade routes are. Their economy rises and falls with who controls and what happens on these trade routes. And so uh, this battle that's being fought, it's being fought in an area that if the Israelites lose this area and this turf, it's not just an entry point to Bethlehem, but if they lose this particular Shephala, uh, it could be very destructive uh, to their way of life because it's uh, import, export, their economy rises and falls with what happens in this particular territory. Now, cities, much like uh, cities are built in our world for strategic purposes because they're next to water for transportation reasons, cities in this world uh, 3,000 years ago were built for military reasons. In fact, if you go to Israel today, one of the things you'll notice is that cities are on top of hills and it's just sort of always been that way and it's for military reasons. So that if you see an enemy advancing towards you, you can prepare for the battle that's going to come. If your city is built in a valley, you're just sort of a sitting duck. And the cities of Azekah and the city of Soko are two cities that are outposts, essentially that have been pl placed there uh, by the by the nation of Israel to protect this valley and to protect this particular Shephelah. Who is in, the, in control at this moment of these two cities? The Philistines. And so the enemy is already encroaching. The enemy is already on home turf. It's just a matter of time before they take this valley and this Shephelah and they destroy the way of life and they get to Bethlehem and these other cities uh, that are critical and at the heart of the nation of Israel. So there's a defensive reason to fight this battle for the Israelites. We have to protect the homeland. If we don't fight this battle, our houses would burn down. There's an offensive sort of reason to fight this battle. This Shephelah is critical to our way of life. Who controls this valley? Who controls these valleys? Uh, in, in many, in, in sort of a way, they control the world. They control what gets in. They control what gets out. Uh, so there is a lot riding on what happens in this particular battle. 
Now, this Goliath fella uh, is an interesting guy. Samuel wants you to know where he's from. He wants you to know a lot about him, how tall he is, where he's from. And it says that Goliath is from a place called Gath. Gath, at this time, would be one of the five major cities of Philistia. And we often think about Goliath as sort of this fumbling ogre, this fumbling giant, Uh, but uh, Gath would be essentially in this world a very sophisticated elite culture. Gath would be, in many ways, it would be the Beverly Hills uh, of this era. It would be a very sophisticated society. Uh, Goliath uh, and and his people, the Philistines, they are a part of what's called an iron culture. Uh, That doesn't mean much to us in, in our world today, But in this era, that meant you were sophisticated, you were elite, you had all the weapons. And so when Goliath comes out in his armor and his artillery, he is wearing the best technology, the most advanced weapons uh, that could be created in the world at this time. Goliath's god is the god Dagon. This is a picture of Dagon uh, that I brought in. This is Dagon. See, look hard enough, eventually you will find the little mermaid in the Bible, okay? This is actually the, the sequel to The Little Mermaid. This is the duck commander years of The Little Mermaid. Uh, <laughs> sort of a glorious beard. Um, but this is Goliath's god. He's the god, Dagon is the god of the sea. Uh, the, the Philistines are the sea people. This is, this is their god. And somewhere on his uniform, somewhere in his uh, garb would be the inscription of his god, uh, of his god Dagon. Now, the Israelites on the other side of the coin are not a sophisticated people at all. This, the, the Israelites are, if, if the people from Philistia, Philistia the Philistines are uh, the elite, if they are from Beverly Hills, the Israelites are the Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> Goliath comes to the battle dressed like Iron Man. David shows up dressed like Tarzan. They are not a sophisticated culture at all. They're essentially mountain people. They don't have the, the they live in the mountains. They're sort of, uh, they don't have the resources. In fact, 1 Samuel 13 says that not a blacksmith could be found in all of the land of Israel. They don't know how to work with iron. They don't know how to work with these tools. And so you begin to get a sense for how outmatched David actually is in this particular Battle. They're not sophisticated at all. At one moment, as David preps for battle, as he begins to enter into this contest of champions, Saul, the king of Israel, tries to give David some of his artillery and some of his weapons to go fight this giant with. And this is what the scripture records in verse 38 of chapter 17. It says, Then Saul, who's the king of Israel, dresses David in his own tunic, He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword. So he takes the sword of Saul, which is interesting, and he puts it on. And he he puts it over the tunic and tried walking around. Uh, So David, in this moment, would look like a puppy wearing shoes. I mean, just, just not equipped, doesn't know how to wear uh, this type of artillery because uh, he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off, and then he took a staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of the shepherd's bag, and with his sling in hand, approached the Philistine. 
So he goes to fight Goliath and he uh, is offered by the king of Israel a sword. Now, uh, 1 Samuel 13 tells us as well that Saul and Jonathan, the king and the king's son, were the only two Israelites that had swords. They were the only two that possessed this type of technology and this type of artillery. Everyone else is carrying slingshots and sticks. This is when David walks into battle, this is sort of a a normal weapon for an Israelite. And David rejects the sword, and David rejects, uh, Saul's trying to do him a favor. If you're going to go fight this giant, at least take the type of weapons that he's going to have in battle, so it's a little bit more of a fair fight. And David says, no, I'm not going to do that because David knows who he is. David is very aware in this moment of who he is and who he's not. And I'm not gonna try to act like I'm from Beverly Hills when I'm a Beverly Hillbilly. I'm not going to come into battle dressed like Iron Man when I'm supposed to be more like Tarzan. Half of the battle when facing a giant is remaining true to who you are and not trying to become like someone else. Half of the battle, when you find yourself squared off against a giant going toe-to-toe, some sort of circumstance in your life, insurmountable circumstances, where you think to yourself in that moment, I do not have the resume, I do not have the talent, I do not have the gifting, I do not have the faith, I don't have the preparation to face and to enter into this particular battle in this particular moment. When you feel like you're going to lose, half of the battle in that moment is remaining true to who you actually are are and who God has called you to be. Half of the battle is remembering that God has called you by name, he's equipped you, he's given you the same power inside of you that's raised Jesus from the dead. If you're anything like me, when I face a giant, when I face a struggle, my tendency is to try to become like somebody else. If I can just sort of lie, if I can just sort of position myself, if I can just change my resume, pad my resume, if I can just try to act like I'm, I'm better, bigger, whatever, strong, and half the battle is remaining true to who you are. God needs you in the world to be you. He doesn't need you trying to be somebody else. When you die, God's not gonna ask you, why weren't you more like Moses? He's going to ask you, why weren't you more like yourself? He's not gonna ask you, why why weren't you more like Moses while you were on planet Earth? He's going to ask you, why weren't you more like yourself? I gave you a unique set of experiences and lenses, and I gave you a gifting and a calling, and I gave you an identity, and I needed you on planet Earth to be you. I didn't need you spending your time trying to be somebody else. David is very aware in this moment of who he is and who he is not. And so he rejects the armor of Saul and he puts on what he's comfortable with and he grabs a slingshot and he grabs the five smooth stones from the stream. And he goes into battle against uh, Goliath and he gives one of the best speeches in all of, of the Bible. I mean, he just gives this unbelievable sort of speech. It's in verse 45 of chapter 17. David said to the Philistines, so he's approaching Goliath and he says this, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. In other words, congratulations, you have all the weapons. But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty Yahweh, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. 
This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I will strike you down and cut off your head. It's so powerful. Don't try this speech with a coworker or someone that you have a conflict with. <laughs> Let me share a scripture with you. Uh, it only works for David. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. That the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. This seems like a strange thing to say. David's entering into battle. He's headed into a military conflict, and all of a sudden he becomes a missionary. That the whole world, David, in this moment, he, he sees something bigger than just this battle between him and a giant. Something about the fate of the world is hanging in the balance. In this particular battle, on this particular day, 3,000 years ago. And then David says this, all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. And then David looked at the Israelites and said, can I get an amen? I made that part up. It's not actually, it's not actually in there. It sounds good though. Uh, David is aware in this moment of what hangs in the balance. David is aware in this moment that it's not just about him squaring off against Goliath. It's not just about two militaries coming together that the whole world will know. David understands that there is more inside this contest of champions on this particular day than just him and Goliath. He sees what hangs in the balance with this battle, that it's about defending his homeland, that something about his homeland, something about the faith of the world, something about the fate of the world, something about people knowing about this God in Israel is hanging in the balance with defending this territory in this particular Shephelah. It's not just about who David is fighting on this day. It's about what David is fighting for. And he understands that there's more that hangs in the balance. And we can read this story in terms of history. And 3,000 years later, uh, Dagon is just a footnote in history. But Jerusalem is the most famous city in the entire world. And eventually, isn't it true, the entire world did know and would know that there is a God in Israel? That eventually, David was right, the whole world would discover that there's a God in Israel. And it's not Dagon. David understood, in this moment, there was so much more that hung in the balance with this battle inside this contest of champions. I bet if you thought about it long enough, I bet if you thought about it hard enough, in your own life, at this particular moment of your life, at this particular season of your life, at this particular stage of your life, at this particular crossroads of your life, perhaps, there is a territory, there is a shephelah, 
that God at this particular moment of your life is asking for you to protect and to defend. There is something at this stage of your life that God, the God of Israel, has entrusted you with at this stage of your life. This is true for all of us in the buildings today. That God has entrusted something to you at this particular stage of your life and he's asking for you to defend and to protect it. And you have no idea, just like David had no idea, what hangs in the balance with your decision and your faithfulness to protect the territory that God is asking for you to defend, to defend. As a high school student, as a middle school student, as a single adult, your purity is a shephelah that God is asking for you to protect and to defend. And it's not about battles you've lost in the past, and it's not about you know, even battles you'll necessarily lose in the future, but it's about saying in this moment, in the here and now, I want to defend and to protect this shuffle, this territory of my purity that God has entrusted me with at this stage of my life. And you have no idea what hangs in the balance with your decision to pick up a slingshot and to fight. In a world where isn't it true, the natural drift and the natural tendency is for that territory, for the, for the territory and the shuffle of your purity to be defeated and to be destroyed. You have no idea what hangs in the balance with your decision and your faithfulness to fight and to protect what God has entrusted to you at this particular stage of your life. When you got married, if you're engaged to get married, whether it was 50 years ago, whether it was five months ago, whenever it was, when you said, I do, all of a sudden in that moment, and you stand before a pastor, it's not just vows and it's not just we're gonna live together, all of a sudden, your marriage becomes a shephelah and a territory that God is asking for you to defend and to protect and not to fight with each other, but to begin to fight for each other. It is a territory that God is asking for you to defend and to protect. And isn't it true in our world, the natural tendency and the natural drift is for the shephelah, the territory of marriage to be overrun and to be defeated when people don't pick up slingshots. And when a married couple says, we're going to prioritize praying together, we're gonna prioritize dinner time, we're gonna prioritize going on dates, we're gonna prioritize being together, we're gonna prioritize praying for each other, we're gonna prioritize modeling in a world that says love is just a feeling, we're gonna prioritize demonstrating love as an action. You have no idea what hangs in the balance with your faithfulness to defend and to protect the territory and the shuffle of your marriage. Something about your kids relationships, something about their kids' relationship will be affected by your decision to fight and to protect and to defend the territory of your marriage that God has entrusted to you at this particular stage of your life. As a parent, when you found out it was a boy or a girl, if you have sons or daughters under 18 that live underneath your roof, your son or daughter is a territory, not in the sense that they're your possession, but they are a territory, they are a shuffle that God has entrusted to you for a season. And you have a responsibility, and as a parent, I have a responsibility to fight for their heart. And when you ask for forgiveness, or when you have them ask for forgiveness, it is a way of fighting and picking up a slingshot to fight for their heart and to fight for the territory that God has entrusted you with at this particular stage of your life. And you have no idea what hangs in the balance with your faithfulness to fight and protect and defend that shuffle.
I was talking with a dad recently. He has a daughter that's 14 years old. He said, ever since she's been eight years old, he says, every Wednesday night, I take my daughter on a date. And I said, well, what do you do? Like, what, like, where do you go? He said, well, every Wednesday night, I dress up and you know, I get the door for her. I take her to a restaurant that she chooses and, and I make sure she has a great time. I ask her questions and he says, every Wednesday night, we haven't missed a Wednesday night and we're not gonna miss a Wednesday night until she graduates and goes off to college. And I said, well, why do you do that? He said, because I want to become the standard by which all other men that ever enter into her life will be judged. And I thought, that's terrifying for her future husband. How, how beautiful is that? I thought that's so beautiful. Because he understands that his daughter, his, his daughter's heart is a shuffle and a territory that for a season and a time has been entrusted to him to protect and to defend. And he has no idea what hangs in the balance with his faithfulness to pick up a slingshot in this moment, in this season. If you're anything like me, my tendency is to fight with people that I'm supposed to be fighting for. And half of the battle is knowing what direction to aim the slingshot. Half the battle is knowing what direction to aim the slingshot and fight for people instead of fighting with them. David very easily could have walked into the camp that day on the side of Israel and just fired the slingshot at Saul. He had good reason to do that but he knew the direction to aim the slingshot. And we have this tendency, if you're anything like me, to fight with people that we are supposed to be fighting for. As a businessman, as a businesswoman, as a student, your character is your shephala. As a disciple of Jesus, your character is a territory that, that it would be so easy in our culture as, a, as an athlete at school to say, I'm just gonna cut some corners, I'm gonna cheat, I'm gonna take the, I'm gonna do the. It's so easy to think about in, in life as a businessman, I'm gonna cook the books, I'm gonna you know, crunch some numbers in my direction here. It'd be so easy to cut corners, but your character is a shephala and a territory that God has entrusted to you to protect and to defend. You have no idea what hangs in the balance with your faithfulness to it. And be careful with what enemies you allow to take up residence on your territory. I'm just like you. I have a lot of friends that have been married for a few years or many years, and they come to me at some moment and say, we're getting a divorce. There's been an affair in our marriage. And every time, it doesn't matter. And it's heartbreaking every single time, isn't it? And the story, it doesn't matter if it's him, if it's her, if it's a secretary, it doesn't matter what the story is. It's always the same story. It started off as emotional and then it became physical and then we found ourselves in a custody battle and eventually, because we didn't fight a battle here, because I lost a battle here, the whole house burned down. And I just think, like you probably thought, if you just would have made some different decisions here to defend and to, to defeat an enemy, when it began to encroach on your territory here, it could have saved a lot of heartache and a lot of pain. Some of us, your story of your faith is because a parent, a grandparent, decided you were a battle that was worth fighting. They, they dragged you to church, they brought you, they prayed for you because they, they, they said you are a territory that is worth protecting and defending. And they prayed for you. They, they, they brought you to church. And that's the reason why you, your faith is what it is. It's the reason your kid's faith is what it is. Aren't you glad they did? What's the territory? What is the shephala at this stage of your life that God is asking for you to protect 
and to defend? What battle is he asking you to fight? What slingshot do you need to grab? What hangs in the balance with your faithfulness to protect and to defend that territory? I bet you have no idea, but I bet if you thought about it, you begin to realize it's not just what it feels like in the moment that so much more hangs in the balance with your faithfulness in that particular area of life. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for the faithfulness of David. Something about us sitting in this building today is related to David's faithfulness 3,000 years ago that the whole world would know. And he had no idea that people 3,000 years later, thousands of miles away, would be gathered uh, to declare that uh, Jesus is alive. But God, I, thank you for, for the faithfulness in that day. And I pray, God, would you give us that type of faith? Would you give us that kind of courage? Would we remain true to who we are and not try to become like someone else? I pray for marriages. I pray for uh, relationships all across the room. God, what's the territory that we need to defend? What slingshot do we need to grab? God, I pray you give us the wisdom to see that. And I pray you give us the courage uh, to fight and to do something about it. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.